rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Next on Drama on One, Creatives in Conversation. Born in Clonus in County Monaghan, Pat McCabe has made his mark on literature with his wonderfully wicked vision and his gift for giving voice to poetic anti-heroes. His work has been adapted for the big screen, for the stage and for radio. And he's been the winner of the Irish Times Aer Lingus Literary Prize in 1992 and has twice been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, for The Butcher Boy in 1992 and Breakfast on Pluto in 1998. In 2003, he was invited to give a rattlebag public interview presented by Miles Dungan at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. This was to coincide with the publication of his novel Call Me the Breeze. Miles began by asking Pat to describe the initial inspiration for the book. It's always very difficult because um, you never quite know what you're doing because if you, if you knew what you were doing, you wouldn't bother doing it. It's a kind of a, an odd journey. It's... Um, kind of starts with a smell it could be fresh paint or burning leaves it could be anything it could be a mood but something kind of ignites and uh, you follow a sentence where it will take you and hopefully it might become a paragraph it might then become a chapter and there's a kind of a a moment of clarity I think where the character either takes wing or it doesn't sometimes the character doesn't and you realize you've gone down the wrong road there isn't a novel there at all and about uh, see I read thousands of pages and sort of trim them down. And uh, what happened with this was that there was a sort of a sense of a mood of menace. And I think maybe it might have been a, a snatch of a song, which could be anything from Una Paloma Blanca to You Sexy Thing or something like that, which sort of gave the locus of the novel, which obviously was the mid or late 70s. And it transpired then that it was 1976, which was a period of great social change in Ireland. Which, uh, But I don't like talking about sociological change because then people kind of tend, reasonably enough, I suppose, to think that you were some kind of chronicler of social change. And for me, that's only 5% of the book. In the sense that Gogol, for example, when he was writing in the middle of his career, he was proclaimed as the Russian Dickens, as a sort of a sociological commentator, until um, none other than Vladimir Nabokov, who's a beautifully playful critic with a wonderfully incisive mind, said... I wonder how realist someone who finds noses in the middle of a bread roll <laughs> or writes stories about a man going insane because someone has stolen his overcoat. How could he possibly be ever regarded as a realist? And his book on Gogol, which is simply called Gogol, he annihilates all this enfeebled nonsense, which proclaimed Gogol as a realist and pr- practically destroyed his career because Gogol then made the fatal mistake of believing the commentators. And for that reason then, the or I would contend, and so did Vladimir Nabokov, that the second part of Dead Soul simply falls to bits because he doesn't trust his instinct. He, If he had stayed with the noses and bread rolls and going to live with folks who live on the moon and various other things, in other words, the winged troika of his imagination, as, as Nabokov calls it, that's when he wrote the great... Uh, works of his career and to get back to the original point which I was trying to make an answer to your question was that the story behind the story is what I'm after for example okay people will say here we go it's uh, a time of great sociological change and everything else but the subterranean text of the book the kind of layer is a generational kind of thing of the dead souls in a small town and had this recurring image of a reservoir and there is a reservoir 
which I know, which I've never visited, and I'm glad that I never visited, because if you visited it, then it wouldn't take shape in your imagination as a kind of a strange myth mythologic mythological place. But it seemed to me to, be, to have that feel of a kind of a repository of all the souls that had lived within a particular place. And uh, by that I don't mean the particular place which I live is Clonus, which sometimes people have insisted upon it isn't. And nobody has the right to say that it is because they haven't seen the inside of my imagination. I would contend that it's uh, an amalgam of three towns in which I've lived, which is uh, Longford, Clonus, Balbriggan, and maybe one or two others, all of which share the same kind of palimpsest of people who, the, the, the spirits of people who walked. The, that particular uh, terrain at a particular time, and then they are the same people almost. So uh, the overview, the, the big realistic story is fine, but that's not the story I wanted to write. It's like uh, what James Joyce was asked about the Homeric parallels in Ulysses. Oh, he said, oh, to be perfectly honest, I don't really care about them, you know. They're just the footbridge I use to get my soldiers across. And I would happily roll it up and throw it away once they're across. So in a, in a sense, all that stuff about taxi drivers in the book and punk explosion, all they are, to me, simply slats on the footbridge. Your soldier in this instance, your main soldier, is Joey Talon. Tell us a bit about Joey Talon. Well, I suppose he encapsulates or embodies or is emblematic of a certain kind of spirit or mood that pervaded not only that kind of North Midlands at that, that time, but rural Ireland at that time, which was a kind of a wild frontier, pre-kind of uh, prosperity time, and which had links with the, uh, I suppose in a sense, pre-British occupation time, where there was a wildness in the people because they simply owed no allegiance to, uh, say, we standard police force and everything else. There was, across the border, there'd be a lot of smuggling. So there was a kind of an almost rockabilly, psychobilly kind of, driving busted old trucks, drinking late into the night, you know, um, strange muted conversations, then explosions, all that kind of thing, but an untamed kind of almost deep south kind of mood without the heat. <laughs> Unless it was heat of a different kind, a sort of an interior heat. Re you're going to uh, read a little bit? Uh, for yeah, us, sure. This is called Primroses. It was Carmel Breden from Old Cross Terrace who won the poem for peace competition. Boyle Henry presented her with the prize and the lot of the peace people from Belfast and Dublin had turned up for the ceremony. Carmel was very nervous reading it, but she managed to get through it all right. All I can remember is, the world is a sad place. We see so much waste. Must we turn away, ignore, so that it happens forevermore? <laughs> that was, strictly speaking, the opening of the peace rally of hope and reconciliation. I was pleased to see it happening and hoped some good would come out of it for everybody's sake. Afterwards, I went out to the reservoir. It was a special place, always had been. It was where Bennett and the salesman and Mona had died. When you sat there listening, you could hear the rustling of the leaves with the wind coming through them as though it were their voices trying to reach you in order to explain. What exactly it was that had happened and how they were feeling now. Are you up there, Bennett? I kept thinking, but not in a negative way. You could imagine other people there, too. Other souls who had long since departed, who had once walked the streets of the town, or stood there staring out across the water towards the thread of the distant horizon. He used to sing here, I heard Mona saying. And whenever he did, you'd imagine yourself way out there on the ocean's blue surface, in this little boat, just lapping homeward. It always used to make me think of that whenever he'd sing... Harbour Lights. I didn't expect Mangan to understand the complexities of the relationship I had with Mona. 
or to know what she meant by that precious harbour, the place of dreams that her and my father never managed to reach. You'd hear mutterings in the town. He bucked her, then cleared off on her and the wife without even bothering to look back once. But that wasn't how Mona saw it, and I knew that. She had told me all about it when I'd visit her after school every day. I'd just sit there listening for hours. I know he loved me no matter what they say, she'd say. And I'm sorry for the pain that caused your mother. But one day we'll reach that place of wonders. The wondrous place. And none of this will matter anymore. And all the things that have ever gone wrong, they'll all have come right again. Because that's what it's like there, Joey. And he's waiting there, your father, Jamesy, for my boat to arrive. At night, perhaps, when all those lovely golden lights are twinkling. And when it does, she paused before turning to me and saying, Mona, he'll say. Mona. Sometimes she'd whimper when she said it or fiddle about with tissues. Don't think bad of me, son, she'd say. I know what the rest of them are saying because of what I'd done to my baby. I used to always make sure to bring her primroses, which grew in abundance out of the reservoir. Call Me the Breeze is another dark, macabre novel, enlivened with lots of flashes of humour, obviously, but does darkness come naturally to you, or do you have to practice? How dare you ask me that? Um, I have a problem with this description, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Macabre, dark, all those kind of things. In the same way that I have a problem with David Lynch's, for example, Blue Velvet being called dark, or this Mulholland Drive being called dark, I think they're full of wondrous flashes of light that just embolden and invigorate the human spirit in a way that I have found in very little other kind of... Well, they're art. illuminating. But they're illum are they not illuminating in a dark kind of a way? Well, I don't think you can have light without shade, certainly. But uh, to focus on the darkness, I think, is, is to, to limit the work. For example, with the Butcher Boy, see, to some extent, criticism and journalism takes the story away from you. And never once when the Butcher Boy was being reviewed or commented upon, did they ever quote the passage, for example, where Francie Brady goes down to the square and he stares out where the town is lit up like a big ship and it's the most happiest, most beautiful, most loving town in all of the world, you know, which to me is the pulse beat of the book. And the irrepressible optimism of the book is what drives it. The irrepressible optimism of this character is what drives it. The darkness is pushed away all the time. He's pushing towards the light. I would much rather be described as the irrepressibly optimistic, hopelessly optimistic, light-chasing young man. <laughs> it's, it's too long. Too, too long. long, yeah. So, so that's why. Dark, that's why, isn't it? Dark is because better. because you can only fit macabre in. You can't fit the rest in. So it suits the journalist. It doesn't suit me. The other thing is that no matter how how heinous the crime is that your your characters commit, there's no judgment on your part of the of the characters. I don't see them as kind of um, sociological or realist in that sense. You know that when you're asked like, why do you write at all? It's almost that you can answer that reality is so complex and so multi-layered that it can only be um, framed by legend or fable or perhaps um, a great big beautiful lie, you know, which the novel really is, except it tells the truth, and, or, or should do. 
the main a lot of your main characters disintegrate before our, our eyes. Is that as a consequence of their own personal psychoses, or are there sociological factors, so societal factors involved? Are they a reflection of a dis disintegrating community, maybe? I think that in a way they're, they're quite romantic books in the sense that they're about unattainable moments, you know, the beautiful moment, for example, between Mona and his father, or the moment between Francie Brady and his father when the father reaches out to touch him and he withdraws the hand. Perhaps it's like the book is really saying, no, go put the hand out and catch the hand, that, they, that he may not have disintegrated if that moment had been caught. And they're really actually striving after a reintegration rather than disintegration, that that's almost the first part of the story, but maybe as I get older, although I keep saying this, that I'll write the sequels to all these books, you know, but it hasn't happened yet, unfortunately. But the criminal aspect of it, I mean, to some extent, the subconscious has to take over. Like, for example, when I was writing The Butcher Boy, people used to say to me, what is it about this book you're writing? I said, I really haven't got a clue. And uh, there, there are two ways of looking at this business of writing. I was listening to Richard Ford when he was in Ireland. He said, no, my, he was asked about, you know, are you in control of your characters or do you have, your characters have an autonomous life? And he said, no, my characters do not have an autonomous life. My characters, as Nabokov has said, are all galley slaves. But I was thinking, well, what happens when you're asleep? At times I've woken up when a problem has been solved and I don't know how it's happened. And that's to some extent how, and that's the moment that Tom Murphy speaks of when the hairs stand up on the back of your neck. It, it only happens maybe two or three times in a book. If you're lucky, it happens that way. But you know if that happens that something is, is working. About a quarter way through this, I thought, yeah, I've got to let this character go. And if he drifts towards crime, to some extent, that's really kind of saying something else as well as the kind of outside uh, sort of empirical world of crime. It's about some disorder of the soul that I'm really after. That, again, this subtext kind of thing. But Joyce's thing about lowering the pail down is, is a sort of a phrase that I've always kind of... Meaning what? Meaning if you lower the pail down into the well of the subconscious, whatever it brings up, look at it and look at it very carefully and perhaps use it. And another one was the, the Graham Greene one, which is the way I always write anyway, is that um, if you let the horse roam free, it'll always find its own way home. Now, I'm not going to suggest to any aspiring writers this is the way to live, because I've often let the horse roam free and I haven't seen it since. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? To get back to the, the 70s in Ireland, it was a very conflicted place. Now, I know you're, you're in terms of your novel writing, you're not, you're not a sociological writer. No, but that's only part of the story. Mm. I'd be glad to talk about it, certainly. I'm not disowning it in any way. Mm. But just in terms of, of, in terms of Pat McCabe, rather than necessarily in terms of Pat McCabe, the writer, there's a lot of, of, of that conflict, violence, terrorism of the 70s, the hippie culture, um, you know, the, the, a lot, lot of music. Was that, was that environment mm. in the 70s? Was that your adolescence? It was, yeah. I was a student in Dublin at the time. Um, before I went to teach in Longford, I was about well, I was 17, it was about 1974, I was sitting in a bar at Monaghan Town. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on at that time. People down south were getting afraid of it, would the whole thing spill over here? And I was sitting in a bar and there was this guy in a flak jacket who looked like he'd been, well, he'd have faced like 40 miles of rough road, as the guy said. And uh, he looked over and uh, I was wearing a duffel coat, I think with a, the standard copy of Steppenwolf sticking out of the pocket. And he looked over and said, Dublin, I'd say. I said, no, it's not Dublin. Oh. Where are they? Didn't answer him. I said, where? And of course, at the same time, there's a British Army captain explaining some new atrocity or something. And there. so there's this, and there's a few dodgy-looking characters hanging about anyway. So the long hair of Steppenwolf, where are you from? He says, eventually, I wouldn't tell him. So he got a bit huffy, and he disappeared. 
came in about half an hour later, and I was leafing through the book. And what do you see? This Dublin, he says. And uh, I looked over. Out from under his coat, he took what I thought was a parcel and slapped it down on the counter. And he says, the old cat's gone through a bad patch, he says. And it was a dead cat full of maggots. And I says, how do you think of that, Dublin? And I says, it's grand. <laughs> and so he says, you're a cheeky boy too, aren't you? And uh, the barman eventually got rid of the cat. And a week later, that guy was born to death in the car. All that sort of stuff, that menacing undertow, that strange kind of stuff, you know, the old Ireland kind of with Dublin rural kind of thing was in there, but the, the horror of the North was intruding upon it. And that whole thing of talking out of the side of your mouth, you know, but at the same time I was wearing a duffel coat, reading Steppenwolf and going to hear, say, Thin Lizzy that night. So it was a crazy kind of uh, cultural mix. Um, what part did music play in all of that for you? I mean, you didn't just go to Thin Lizzy, you also, you played, you performed. Well, I wouldn't dignify it now by saying I played. I w- <laughs> I was standing behind a keyboard, all right, and... Uh, looking good, I'm sure. Not at all. No. Not, not looking one bit good. And uh, I used to play with uh, a couple of small ballad groups down in Longford, which was a great life, actually. And in a way, I'm sorry that I didn't carry on doing it, because it was a kind of a secret world, not the show band world, but of little ballad groups, you know, playing in places like uh, Slevens of Bunlahi and the 98 Bar and Balnamuk and all these kind of places, you know, and... Uh, I don't know, you didn't really have to be that good, you know. I mean, I know an awful lot of songs which are three chords, and, you know, if I got a few jars, I just won't stop singing them. It's like a loop. I just can't stop. It's kind of a problem, you know. It really is. Like, this man, this man, this human jukebox, this is, this simply will not shut up. And, like, they're the worst songs that you've ever heard in your life. But in this particular world, everybody liked those songs, and it's not to cast aspersions on them because I love them too. It's everybody else that's wrong. It's everybody that doesn't drink and sell Slevens of Lahi in the 98 bar that, that has the problem, I think. I think the sophistication is there, you know, because once you got the ball rolling and the doors were closed, you could sing to people from tw- between 10 and 70 years of age, and there was a great sense of, uh, again, getting back to that rockabilly madness, like uh, middle-aged women standing up roaring and cheering like lunatics, and, you know, you're baiting this thing. But then I hit the big time and got into Paddy Hanrahan and the Oakley Show, Home of Show Band, which was a very, very sophisticated outfit, I have to say. And we played England and all. <laughs> Suits? Well... Do you know what a goat at my trousers one time? <laughs> that's, that's true, Miles. Yeah, I was down at Clare, and Paddy Hanron says, you, we haven't got your trousers, you'll have to wear mine. And Paddy was a very big man, he's a large belly, and I put them on, and I was like, you know, like Tweedledum, that kind of effect. <laughs> and I was going to wear them, but anyway, we went off for a drink in the hotel, a show band's deal, and we got back, genuinely was a goat chomping these things that looked like painters overalls. <laughs> so I had to go on just an ordinary pair of jeans, right? Now you were standing with, uh, I don't know, what would you play? good-hearted woman or there'll be a tombstone every mile, which was a celebrated hit for Paddy Hanra and the Oklahoma show band back in the, in the 60s. But uh, we'd knock that one out. And then, uh, you know, we'd uh, go off on English tours. And, uh, well, you know, we, we had a great time. What can you say? What do show bands do? They certainly, well, this particular show band didn't play much music, but they had a great time. <laughs> you know. In, in Comedy the Breeze, you bring the, the musical side of it and the violence together mm. in one month because there's, a, there's a, a sort of a parallel of the, the, the horrendous Miami show band massacre. Mm. You have this um, punk group, the Mohawks. Yeah, the Mohawks were just a device really to get all that stuff in, which was the punk kind of element of it and the show band, to bring the two of them together in a convincing kind of way. But I think the, the, the Miami thing was really the end of our brothers in the North, you know, that... Uh, it was a terrible thing to happen. Like everything that happened in the north of Ireland was terrible, bar none on any side. And it, it's just a, a 
an awful inheritance, we, or an awful thing to have to live through, not particularly for me, but for people across the border. But there was a kind of a, a thing about show bands, like journalists, that they weren't touchable. Nobody touched show bands. And for years, uh, pop groups and uh, show bands have been crossing the border, you know, with impunity, no problem at all. I mean, a lot of the great sh show bands came from the north because they, they taught music in the schools there. You had the GI influence in Derry, so you had the Freshmen, the Plattermen, all these guys. Who used to, used to actually call the South of Ireland Mexico? They, were, you know, they, they thought, go down to Mexico, like, and all these, what they thought, like, crap dance halls and everything. But nobody would touch them. And then this thing happened in uh, Banbridge, and I was hitching around Ireland, and I'll never forget the mood there. It really was a moment of kind of anger, terror, and, you know, this is, the game's up. There's going, this is going to move down here. Do you remember when people weren't saying, oh, I know what's behind it all, it's drugs. Drugs is the cause of it. Anytime you get a lift with anybody, you know what it is. They're all on drugs up there. That's a very incisive analysis <laughs> of the situation, you have to say. But uh, it stopped being drugs then, and it was... All Northerners are bad. We don't want them down here anymore. And this was the, the, the one that it was a bridge too far. And there was a sense that around then that Northern people stopped getting served in pubs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the, the political situation then with the 73-77 government was very repressive. Now, I'm not, I'm not my business to make comment politically, but it seemed to me to cause more problems than it solved, you know that it was very, very repressive and uh, it was confrontational. So you had a real danger down here at, this, at that time, I think, of uh, almost a police state. This is like, the Offences Against the State Act. Yeah, and the heavy, heavy gang, gang and the emergency that, powers yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Now, there were very turbulent times, and I'm not going to sit here retrospectively saying how, how disgraceful that is. I'm not saying it, but in the book, I'd like to document that kind of sense of edgy menace where people were being pulled off the streets. And my, my question would be, how necessary was it and what did it achieve? One of the other things that comes across is, uh, you, mean, you mentioned uh, Bono and you mentioned Joni Mitchell and uh, Robert De Niro. and all, uh, there's, there's that element, there's the, the, uh, the American cultural element to it. And one of the things that comes across is that external cultures are perhaps more important in a small town environment than they are perhaps in a city. Well, I think the American influence in Ireland is huge, particularly, I'm not so sure about Dublin, but in, uh, in small town Ireland it was absolutely massive. I mean, the, the number of people that went there and did very well, you know, that bypassed England. You didn't hear much about England, but... Every Christmas Eve, we used to come and knock on our door. I, live, live, I still do live in a place called Fermanagh Terrace. The proper name for it is the Gullet, of course. But uh, <laughs> this knock would come anyway. And the postman there, and they always remember there was snow, but there couldn't be snow all the time. That's just fiction, <laughs> fiction memory. Like, you know, this beautiful Christmas card kind of image. But the postman would be there, this huge, big parcel, right, with George Washington's mug slapped all over the top right-hand corner. And of course, we'd bring it in. Well, the name of it was The Package. You know, the package. Your Auntie Lily selling you a package. So we dive on it, like all these kids in hand-me-downs and snothers charge on top of this thing, like start ripping it to bits, right? So I'd get the Marvel comics, of which there was about two dozen. Fantastic Four, you know, Daredevil, the Iron Man, all that stuff, but in brilliant condition, unlike the comics that we were swapping around in Clonus, which had gone through about 100 different families. But these were like... Uh, beautiful, glossy covers. So I'd tear up then, and my sister would get the Majorette's uniform, now, you can imagine the fun there was going up to the Louis Convent and Clonus in the Majorette's uniform and white boots, right? And if you think that was bad, you should have seen me in the yellow windshield on the lumberjack short in 1965, <laughs> <laughs> right? So there you have uh, the whole American influence, right? This comes from a beautiful place. This is from Kenny Nirvana, where they just seem to send you wonder after wonder after wonder. And for an awful lot of people, then, this was the place to go. This was all the culture that was un tainted by history, it was benevolent, it was benign, and it was full of endless possibilities.
possibility. It was a can-do society, and in your head, that's where you gravitated towards it. So it wouldn't be any surprise then that when Iron Butterfly or Jim Morrison started barking, that you'd go for them as well. Mm. So it was kind of a great liberation that way. It was almost like uh, the world you remember between, say, 55, I was born in 63, was monochromatic, and suddenly went widescreen and technicolour with the advent of the postman's knock. The Butcher Boy was obviously the major literary breakthrough as far as you're concerned. Is it true that you weren't sure if anyone would read it? You thought it was too out there? I don't know whether I thought it was out there or not. I thought it was perhaps too personal, you know? I mean, you have a different relationship with the book, obviously, as the author, but it came, it was written in such a white heat after the, after all, I mean, someone said to me, a journalist said, uh, oh, so you wrote it in two years then? And I said, no, 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 you didn't hear me right. I said, 22 years. And journalists who are used to instant gratification and everything else, their jaw hit the floor. And he says, are you serious? I said, I'm very serious. Because it may actually have been longer than that. Because the, the, um, the germination of that story took place when I think it was about nine, when my father, who was a very literary man himself, said, I want you to listen to a play tonight. It was a radio play by a guy called Patrick Shea, who wrote Voices in the Sound of Drums, which was about an incident that happened in 1904. And I don't want to dwell on it because, you know, there are people still alive. But it was the... Um, the beginning of the story, and because I knew the place and I knew the smells of the place and could feel, felt it in somewhere very deep anyway. And then when, when again, the subconscious took over. When I was begun that book, it was a huge, big slab of manuscript, and uh, there were about five novels in it because it took me a long time to actually carve through to the rock face where the style was to be found. But so was, was it written in the third person? It was, yeah. yeah. It was written about ten different ways. Again, trying to get to the core of your own being, I suppose. So the famous one, like you how do you make that elephant? I chipped away all the bits that weren't the elephant. <laughs> and uh, that was really what was going on. But I had had a relationship with a publisher who published a book of mine called Carn, and when I sent him this slab, understandably said, ah, no, I don't know what you're talking about. This is a cod. So it was all very well for him to say, but to me it was my livelihood, so I was in real trouble. But a very interesting thing happened then is that uh, I was living in London with my wife and my kids were small. And uh, without kind of doing the old dark artist on it, there's a moment of kind of despair, really. You think you've got it wrong. You may actually have got it all wrong. And, uh, you know, that you're not any good. Not only are you not any good, you have nothing to say at all, that you've imagined all this, because nobody's getting it. So surely if you're any good, people should be able to understand your story. Obviously, you're not communing with other human beings. But anyway, what happened was I left it for a month and more or less I decided not to do it anymore. I was teaching. I used to get up early in the morning. We were living in a small flat in Kilburn. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote, and uh, then got this thing at the end of it, which surprised me. And then you have to say, well, if it surprises you, it's going to surprise a reader. You know, there's some, something in that as well. So I scribbled off a letter to an agent. I said, would you be interested in a book set at the, you know, in the, during the Cold War about mad priests and a young fellow who's nuts? And uh, <laughs> that's all I wrote. And uh, he said, yeah, send it in. He read it and liked it, and then... Peter Strauss picked it up. And then with uh, yourself and Neil Jordan in 1997 producing the, the script for the film The Butcher Boy, was that, was that a, a difficult process? Well, it was interesting. Compromising the It was novel. interesting to say the least because mm -hmm. Neil and I met in London and he said, look, this is going to be a very difficult book to adapt. And he said, will you have a go at it? I said, I had never written a screenplay before. So I went at it and I thought, oh, I thought this is really easy. All you do is sit down and write a whole bunch of scenes and make up a whole load of new stuff. And I brought it back to Neil and like his head almost spun 360 degrees on his axis when he was leafing through this thing he said I didn't ask you to write a whole new novel I asked you to write a screenplay 
He said, look, you're going to have to start all over again. So uh, then it, it was my first brush with the whole film business, which absolutely is terrifying for a writer, I think. You know, that you get into this swamp out of which there seems to be no way out. And I uh, did another one for it. And then it, what happened was he got frustrated with me. He said, no, look, you're too imaginative. You know, this is not the way screenwriting works. So he took it. And in about three days, between the two scripts that I had written in the book, he imposed an architecture and a form, which really screenwriting seems to me to be about. That... Thomas McGuinn has a thing about screenwriting where he says there can be no dead air on the screen. In a novel you can have 20 pages you know, of pencil sharpenings and bits of chat and if the language is good enough it will sustain the novel. The novel will hold it. But if you've got that, if you've got that in uh, screenplay the movie is dead before it hits the screen at all. So he chopped all the dead air out of it and posed a kind of a traditional kind of beginning, middle and end of coda on it and uh, New, I suppose, because he's years of experience of what works on screen, what you can do and what you can't do, which I certainly didn't have. So it was, the, the architecture was all his. And I suppose the dialogue remained mine and other things like that, but essentially the, sh the form and shape of it was Neil Jordan's. In relation to, I mean, you, you, we talked about, or you talked yourself about the, the landscape in which your novels are set, and, you, you know, it's not necessarily clonus. But not at all. We, all. we all think it's clonus. Yeah, it's a fictive world, you know. It may, it may jump off from that. I mean... If it was Clonus, I would have called the town's Carn. I mean, I don't change the name of the town for no reason. There, there, there are very many things drawn from other towns in the book, and it's a much bigger book. And, uh, you know, the insist upon Clonus is... It's unhelpful, to say the least, you know, because people then start imagining they're being written about, it. and it's not the truth. Um, and it's not even important. You know, when you talk about William Faulkner, you, nobody goes around, oh, yeah, we all know what's Oxford, Mississippi. You're saying it's Yoknipatawa County, but we know. Oh, yes, William, we know. Nobody should give a toss where it's set. Does it work as a book, and is the imaginative landscape where it, which is created within it, is it true? Is it, does it have a resimilitude? Can you believe this place that people walk around in it? And that's the test, not where it's set in reality. The voices, the vernacular. Where do, the, where do those voices come from? Well, a lot of it would be northern Midlands, certainly. Like, I mean, I used to work in a little shop called Joe Comiskey's in Clonus, and uh, in those days, you see, the car wasn't the big thing. Everybody walked. So you were just interacting with the community in a very exciting way, you know, that everybody, and uh, unlike a lot of small ch children now, you knew people of all ages, you know, I lived in a terrace of 10 houses, there was a 60-year-old woman next door, 45-year-old man, and uh, somehow the world of Clonus got mixed up, with, for me, with a whole different world, which was the world of comics, so I used to kind of hang around with this guy, and he used to say, if any new guy came to the school, he'd say, hey boy, look, and there was always an English kind of looking fella, a new fella in town, and he'd say, I'd say he has plenty, and uh, I'd say, well, what do you reckon? He'd, and then he'd go and he'd collar this guy. He, was, he, he always seemed to be a little Philip Nugent-type guy. <laughs> you know, like a little bit nervous, you know, and uh, surrounded by these wild bucks, you know, a little uncouth perhaps, you know, who might break up your gig or sort of make you succumb to horrible tortures in the shade or something. I don't know. But he'd go up to this fellow and say, have you got any? And he'd say, have I got any what? And he'd say, Dandy, Beano, Topper, Victor, Hornet, Hotspur, Hurricane, Deanta, Bundy, and, 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 and Commandos. See, see, and commandos, like which were more expensive, you know, they were one in six or something, so you have to get two for that. But to get back to the point, like you'd be going around and uh, you used to mix up. There were people around, you see, that looked like the guys on the telly. There was a guy, I can't name any of these people, but he, he was a travelling salesman and he looked like the guy in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, right? He looked like uh, Admiral Nelson, you know, in that 60s silk suit kind of way, and he had a briefcase, and every, every time we'd pass him, he'd go, boop, boop. Boop, dive, dive, dive. And your man would go, what the fuck's going on here? And then another guy would come along, and he looked like Napoleon Solo out of The Man from Uncle, and he would step, 
<coughs> he'd start singing the, the theme from the man from Uncle, okay? So all these things got mixed up. You know what I mean? There were theme tunes for everybody, and yet the, the, the town somehow became like a movie set or something, and we never kind of twigged that there was anything wrong with this. And then it sort of infected our language. It'd be bandits at three o'clock, and taffies bought it, and all this kind of stuff. You know, and, and if anything happened, ooh, err, and all this, and yikes, and arf, arf, and all this kind of rubbish talk. But this went on, like, for years, like, not until, like, at 15 or anything, but say around until you stopped around 12. Well, not really stopped around 12. So, <laughs> <laughs> so at 13, you kind of stopped. But, uh, but the vernacular thing was the bit of it that survived, because the way that people spoke and still do, like, I f always found intoxicating. You know, it's like, uh, I was reading a book by Sinjin Irvin there recently on Oscar Wilde. You know, he talks about the particular kind of Ulster, Scottish kind of language, you know, it's like medieval English, like sort of Shakespearean, like Dawn Boy and Yawn Buck and, uh, you know, that stuff that was in the Butcher Boy, we're up from the bogs and our boots and our togs and we'll fex so it's turf at the ref, you know. You'd stitch the, this all in with this comic book language and it used to be kind of uh, just so much, almost written into your DNA so that, so like uh, when they came to the right and the Butcher Boy, well, I let these things go, so they had been kind of repressing them. But when you got to the point where you didn't care, then they roared up like a kind of fountain. And uh, where people were saying this magic realism, I kind of was uh, drawn to the phrase of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, when he was talking about it. He says, I don't understand what you mean by magic realism because I just wrote down what my grandmother used to tell me. And if my grandmother said, well, we were sitting that day on the veranda, you know, and it was really warm and a thousand million painted butterflies filled up the room. He didn't say, oh, come on now, a thousand million painted butterflies don't go filling up rooms. He just said, oh, that's fine. They filled up the room and I'll write it down. And uh, my mother used to come out with stuff like that, not but painted butterflies, but like a, just the nuttiest stuff you've ever heard in your life, like the mad stuff, you know, that you'd be locked up for saying nowadays, you know. She had names on everybody and like I didn't really think they had real names. So that mixed up with the, the kind of man from Uncle and the Admiral Nelson, you know, and all these guys. Well, that's the way the world is. Everybody else doesn't understand that. But, you know, in this little bubble of a world, it suits me just fine. Uh, maybe if you could finish, if you could uh, pick another extract from uh, Call Me the Breeze. Well, the, the wondrous place is, is paradise, of course, and uh, Joey Talon, the narrator, has crashed a Pontiac into the, the cabin where he has kidnapped this girl, which is actually the womb in a way. But he's, uh, an alternative title for this might be A Stranger in Paradise. So he's in paradise. He's dead, in other words, right? Everyone had got up early and they had all been for a walk in the spring rain so as to give Mona and Mrs. Tallon time to get everything ready for the picnic of dreams, a daily occurrence which took place at 12 p.m. sharp. They had prepared the most beautiful array of treats that you could ever imagine, wooden bowls of peeled boiled eggs, fresh salads, fruit, nuts, pastries, and mouth-watering confections of all sorts, plus a bewildering assortment of coloured fruit drinks neatly laid out in the gingham cloth which they had spread beneath the tree of everlasting apples. The sky was streaked with stripes of pink and the sun was the most gorgeous-looking crimson ball. Mona was nibbling on a watercress sandwich and waiting for Jamesy. You could hear him singing Harbour Lights the way he used to long ago. They waited for almost three hours, but there was still no sign of Joey. In the end, they just gave up and went home. Mrs. Tallon folding the picnic rug and sighing a little tearfully, we'll try again tomorrow. Who knows? He might come then. But in their hearts they knew he never would. For ever since their earliest days in the wondrous place, Joseph had increasingly grown into a stranger, 
and somewhere deep down they had come to accept it. Back then, Mrs. Tallon had tried so hard to get through to him, gone down regularly to the harbour each night where she'd find him staring out to sea. Occasionally, he would become hysterical and inevitably people began to lose patience, tossing him aside as they went off about their business. It was sad, they would often reflect later. It was indeed sad, because the truth was that Joey Tallon wasn't deranged. He was, in fact, as he insisted, simply in the wrong place. And which was why it was logical for him to continue going on his nocturnal visits to watch the harbour lights twinkling, repeating, She'll be definitely coming tonight. And to plan for the moment they'd be setting off on their journey. To the United States of America, where the surf of Big Sur would crash on Californian sand, the blue sky of Iowa rise over patchwork fields and white wooden chapels. And the woman he loved more than anything in the world put on her shades and shake her blonde hair free, standing by the side of the Pontiac, smiling as she said, It's the end, you know that, Joey, don't you? The end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. It's beautiful, Breeze. I know that, J.C., he'd reply, consumed almost totally by a sweeping wave of happiness her hand in his as she rested her head on his shoulder, contemplating the tranquility of the flat Midwestern plains. He could see it all clearly like some secret mini-movie in lush and sumptuous technicolor. It's like total belonging breeze. You know what I mean, she said. It's like home or something. I know, he replied. I know what you mean. I've been searching for it all my life. Her hair in that huge but inconceivably easeful silence, blowing as though before some ancient wind, the golden corn all about them swaying, as it might in a child's golden paradise vision. Thank you. Bob McCabe, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks very much, Miles. Thank you, audience. And in that edition of Creatives in Conversation, we heard Pat McCabe in conversation with Miles Dungan. Pat McCabe's latest book is Pogue Mahone, published by Unbound. And for more about Pat's upcoming novel, Golden Grove, have a look at unbound.com. The producer was Kevin Reynolds. Dave Coughlin and Kevin Fowley were on sound. The complete archive of Creatives in Conversation and all the editions of the Drama on One podcast are available at our website, rte.ie slash drama on one. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.